Welcome to the Naked Ambition podcast, where we speak with the people who are making an impact in tech, innovation and leadership all around the world. I'm your host, Fiona Triaka. On this week's show, we're really excited to be chatting with Robert Scrobe. Robert is the owner of the Dallas Design Sprints. He's also the host of the super popular podcast, Remotely Interesting, with Sandy Lamb. And he is the founder of the Global Virtual Design Sprint. So the Global Virtual Design Sprint uh, brings together facilitators, designers, experienced designers, um, and just generally keen people around the topic of design sprints to actually solve challenges over uh, a number of weeks. And it's the last one actually attracted around 350 people globally. So we're really excited to chat with Robert about this and uh, some of his other experiences in driving collaboration and solving complex challenges using the incredible tool that is virtual design sprints. Hope you enjoy. We are super excited, Robert, to have you here. I think I met, well, saw you speak at the uh, Design Sprint conference back in Sydney and you beamed in with a few of your collaborators in November. A lot would have changed since then when it comes to virtual sprints. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what your last few months have been like? Well, there's just been this weird thing called a pandemic that's hit everything. <laughs> <laughs> kind of turned things upside down slightly. Yeah. Um, that's probably the, the most profound thing that I think most people can relate with right now. Yeah, that's um, But since that time, since we, we entered this new era of staying indoors and talking in small con confined spaces <laughs> and then, you know, seeing each other through a video screen, uh, I've just been doing a lot of exploration in this space around mm. how design sprints and remote facilitation work with people that may not know about it or are used to being doing facilitation in person yeah. uh, and how that translates for businesses and how what what makes sense for them to do versus mm. what they currently have in-house and who knows about remote, remote facilitation yeah. um, been doing a lot of coaching a lot of one-on-ones uh, February was just madness with everyone anticipating the entire global economy to start falling down the wayside, uh, trying to make sense of what, how they could position themselves to basically survive the storm that was coming. And then after that kind of settled down a tad and people knew what they wanted, uh, the GBDS was right around the corner, which is coming up in two weeks. Mm. Um, so preparation for that is always um, many... Uh, many nights till like two or three in the morning, kind of like now. So I, I practice my insomnia at least twice a year and this is uh, that period. Good on you. Cause it's of course, it's 11 o'clock over there in Dallas, isn't it? You're beaming to yeah. us in Dallas, yep. And we are live to the audience as well. So I wanna say hey to everyone who is out there um, and is listening live here from all over the world. We've got some of your super fans on here. I think we've got people from the UK and the US and down here in Australia. So we're gonna have a bit of a chat, Robert and I, for the next kind of 40, 45 minutes, and then we're gonna open it up um, to some questions. So if you've got any questions, you can pop them um, in the Q&A uh, and we will see those come up in the chat function and we'll be able to ask Robert some of those questions towards the end of this recording. But can we go back a step, Robert, and can you tell us, before we dive into your experiences, the do's and don'ts of, oh, here we go. <laughs> Going to space. Just in case something will happen in the background. <laughs> I want to make sure that we're completely not distracted by it. That's okay. I think that's all right. Is it your little one Owen? He might show up. Is that the you might get a guest? Yeah, there might be other people that come into the room. So I just want to make okay. sure that no one, you know, there's that the background doesn't distract. So that's all. <laughs> cool. Go for um, it. can we can we take a step back and tell us a little bit about how you ended up? doing so many virtual design sprints or becoming a bit of a, a bit of a leader in the space. Tell us about your career. So early on when I started practicing design sprints, right around the time that the book, the blue book came out, the sprint book by Jake mm -hmm. Knapp, um, we were testing it out in uh, Sabre, which was my employer back then. And we were trying it out with the design teams to figure out what worked and what didn't work. Uh, uh, after we did the first big company-wide demo of the process, I think it was like in August, September, um, 
it was right around then where I started getting, where we have, we we're having a conversation about, and we thought this is going to go virtual. Hmm. This is going to go remote. I mean, it's only a matter of time before it eventually gets there. Uh, it was instinctual more than it was kind of looking at the lay of the land. Mm. Um, just because so many different things were kind of heading that, that space, uh, it just made sense that a lot of the trappings of doing in-person facilitation, getting everybody together, putting them in the same room, uh, dedicating their time and clearing their calendar for three, four, five days at a time. Mm. If you were to translate that into an online environment, there were bigger advantages of time and cost savings, not only by compartmentalizing both the in-person decision time and the offline kind of iteration and ideation time, mm. that just made sense. The, the problem was is that there wasn't a roadmap for that. Mm. And most people I know in the facilitation space like kind of poo-pooed it. They were like, yeah, no, yeah. humans want to kind of relate to one another. They want to meet in person. Um, it'll never happen. Um, the usual kind of, uh, kind of, uh, you know, you know, pushback from it. But usually when you get that kind of pushback, that's pretty good indication that you've got something. Either you're crazy or you may be onto an idea. So um, I think in November 2018, I did a pilot with some people that were in the space and saying, let's, let's just try this out. Let's just put, let's do one sprint in November, see what happens. It ended up being three teams and we adopted or we brought in a, um, an outfit from Austin that was a disaster relief organization mm -hmm. and IBM and a bunch of other people that kind of came to the table. And I was like, whoa, no one was like, I, I, it just started consuming my time. And with the outputs that we came from that and the feeling that we had from it, we knew something was there. People mm -hmm. wanted to continue working on their sprints even a month after we got together. Yeah. So keeping it in the free version, we went for version two. And that was in April of 2019. And that was madness. That was about 300 plus people. Oh, this is all for free. So 300 plus people that eventually signed up, 150 stuck around. We had 17 teams that and it lasted a full month. So it was like the crazy notion that we could do not just one, two, but four weeks full of sprints. Mm -hmm. um, it was something that started the conversation about, yeah, we've proven uh, unequivocally that you can do this remote. It wasn't even a conversation anymore. It had happened, it was done now was optimizing and figuring out what made sense to do. November was uh, ex more experimentation with different types of sprints, different processes, opening up some uh, experimentation around time spent on the sprint. And then uh, this uh, pandemic that we have with COVID-19 has kind of pushed everybody into a remote environment. So suddenly the, the small swimming pool, the kiddie pool that we were playing in, oh. had 500 people trying to get in. <laughs> at the same time. So um, for this one, uh, we're not necessarily trying to fit uh, a swimming pool into a, a Tupperware container. Uh, what we're going to do is our own custom build of a virtual design sprint that makes sense for optimizing time and off offline and online time. Um, we're also putting a heavy emphasis on education. So we're providing free virtual design sprint training as part of the engagement. So a couple of weeks before you do your sprint, pretty much I've taking the attitude like it's trying to teach my mother how to do design sprints and my mother is someone that can't figure out a wi-fi password bless her heart but her and technology are like distant cousins like on opposite sides of the earth i love it that's a design principle that's like can my mom use it that's it yeah so i'm, I'm that's why i'm 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 um I'm kind of using that philosophy to, to kind of put that into place. Mm -hmm. And finally, we learned a lesson in November about just doing sprints and not having a, an after, like the next chapter. So every, every, cha every challenge that we have for people to choose from on the teams has a sponsor that knows where it's going to go if it's very successful. They have the right network connections. They'll reach out to people in their network on where to go, whether it's VC funding or if it's like a greater organization that's nonprofit. Since our event is COVID-19 oriented, about half of our challenges are, in, are dealing with social issues around the pandemic, like loneliness and domestic violence. And then there's another bucket that's like really innovative thinking around uh, women's sexual health or um, uh, the future of Colombia in terms of like digitally kind of bringing it up to speed. All it's, it's just runs the gamut, but they're all from the participants. So the idea is, is that if you put in a challenge, you have to have a plan on how it's going to work after it's done. Like where are you going to take it? Who are you going to talk, talk to and make it happen? So that's what's on tap in a couple of weeks. And mm. when May starts, it's going to be three 
full weeks of that. And then June is going to be a showcase where the teams that made it all the way through and had something to show will um, we'll get them on Zoom webinar like this, yeah. and they will present what they've done, their work, and we'll invite industry experts and people in the field that know this stuff to come in and take a look at the work. Amazing. So it's going to be your most ambitious one yet, it sounds like. I want to dive into um, more about the Global Virtual Design Sprint in a minute and get into the actual mechanics of how this is going to work so people can understand, even if they want to get involved as well, what, what that might involve and what the commitment is. Can we take a step back for, I'm thinking about um, some of the audience here who potentially are, you know, probably not new to design sprints, but possibly new to the concept of virtual design sprints. Um, and one of the biggest debates out there that I no doubt you've been a big part of, I've seen a lot of, of your blogs about this as well, that kind of concept of the online versus the virtual. So we're in a situation now where we've all gone virtual because that is the new environment and the new way that we have to work. So there isn't really a choice. But talk to us a little bit about what you see as the major differences between them and even the benefits of, regardless of COVID-19, of actually doing sprints in a virtual environment. Could you talk us through some of those? Sure. So some of the benefits in the physical design sprint world are that you get to work with people one-on-one -on -one and you get a wealth of uh, a wealth of information uh, like non-nonverbal uh, communication, regular communication. You you really get to bond with people as human beings. You have, you get to form meaningful relationships in the old kind of way of doing things. They, things are much more tangible. You have uh, ample time for discussion. You you can elaborate on your point of view and really be understood. Um, and basically, you have dedicated time where people can kind of get together and talk about things. So the physical aspect of it of of kind of having a workshop has always been about the experience and the outputs from that and where they go. When, you know, what, are, they, are they something that are executable? Do they build upon an existing body of work? Are they going to improve an existing project or start a new one? So those usually all kind of weigh in on traditionally what has been in person. Yeah. The virtual space is different in that, and I'm gonna make a distinction between remote and virtual. Yeah. Remote is distributed teams where you may have like a group of people in one room and then you have a couple people dialing in from Ireland or from, mm. um, from Chechnya or from Australia and, and going back to the States and really your time zone uh, managing, but uh, people kind of dial into a central room that's doing all the activity. Mm. Virtual is everyone has their own screen. Mm. So it doesn't matter where they are or who they are. Mm. When you come into a sprint, you have your own connection to the web and you have your own screen. Even if there's somebody with you that's sitting right next to you, you're working off the same screen so it levels the playing field completely. Um, another uh, characteristic of doing it this way, the virtual design sprints, is that you don't spend a lot of dedicated time, and I may mention this, all at the same time on one day. Yeah. You essentially get together for decision making, for uh, elaborating on points of view to be understood, and the discussion is kind of, the discussion parts tend to be both online and offline. So you use things like Slack, Basecamp, mm -hmm. Notion, and mm -hmm. document everything that you're doing or put your point of view in there. So people can passively consume what you are trying to say or communicate without mm -hmm. dedicating their personal time to getting it done. Another advantage of doing it online is you can record everything. And mm -hmm. that includes your subject matter expert interviews, the actual uh, sessions that you do with all your teams so mm -hmm. that stakeholders can come pop in and view what's going on and they can view recordings as well. You can uh, timestamp those within Zoom and other applications so you can hit critical points of, of, of um, conversation that people should know about. Yeah. And for if you do decide to do user interviews, you can record all of those and people can watch them on their own time and react to them and put their results in something like Miro or Miro or Teams or something else to track what's going on. Mm -hmm. It's it's highly, per, it's highly, um, uh, it, it, it's very um, flexible mm -hmm. in terms of some person that may have a really aggressive schedule around getting something else done but still wants to participate. Uh, it also lends itself to um, being able to dial in from anywhere and basically be a part of what's going on. The, the, the cons of doing it virtually is that you have to do a lot more in terms of preparation mm. and you have to do, well, you have to over communicate and your expectations and what people need to do between different days. An example of that is, is when you go from Monday to Tuesday, it's, traditionally it's lightning demos. You have to make sure that people understand how to put those in your whiteboarding, mm. in your whiteboard uh, application. Um, 
you know, some of the, and uh, what they need to put in there in terms of detail. Mm -hmm. So those are kind of the high level things, but I've always kind of gravitated to virtual because I've been able to see how you can still have that camaraderie that you experience in physical design sprints manifest in virtual, mm -hmm. but it is a completely different animal. Mm. I think such interesting insights there. Something I want to even go a little bit deeper into and you've touched on it a little bit is that the connection between people. This is a big topic that everyone is talking about at the moment. If we're just, there is this massive rush just to take everything online without necessarily thinking about that overall experience. Can you talk a little bit to you know, what you do in terms of from a facilitator perspective to manage energy? for one thing, your own energy and others in the room, what are some of those sorts of techniques that you use and how do you up the connection between the group as well? So I'll talk to in two, two phases. One is the social aspect and the other is the kind of energy, you know, make, making sure the energy kind of stays where it is with throughout the, the entire thing. Mm -hmm. So from a social aspect, hopefully you've had a chance to meet in person before you actually get it together for a virtual sprint. If not, it's not a, it's not a, um, not a deal breaker, okay. but chances are you want to take the, the time before the sprint actually happens to do some sort of kickoff session, something where it's 90 minutes. Mm -hmm. You kind of go through everyone's thinking around um, who's the audience for what you're doing, what's the current, um, the current ex experience they have and where you want them to go so that you're kind of doing a little bit of problem framing. May have, maybe if you have a very uh, ambitious group, you can do pre-dotyping, which is Alberto Savoia's approach to testing the market for desirability before you even do a design sprint to see if it's worth it in the first place. Mm, cool. um, but most of the social aspect of virtual sprints happens previous to the actual sprint happening. Mm -hmm. um, in, the, in this day and age with COVID, COVID-19, most of that is online, but it is kind of extended discussion and conversation that people listen into. And uh, people do that with camera and off camera, but you know, it's perfectly up to them if they want to engage. Then with the actual design sprint itself, um, the socialization, there's, there's less discussion, but there's more on the side of execution. And a lot of the discussion is captured in through offline channels. So that's tend to, and, the, and then after the sprint is also where it ramps up on social again. And I found that with the GBDS, people, find a way to kind of gravitate and meet one another eventually. If they meet online, but they, there's this in, implicit promise that eventually you're gonna meet with them down the road at some point, which has happened. Um, and those are a whole different stories I won't get into. <laughs> but um, with the energy that you're talking about within a virtual design sprint, um, it, it depends a lot on the facilitator and what they value. Sometimes the facilitator's tone and the way they approach the entire engagement will uh, manifest itself in the activities and how people kind of approach all, all the, the exchanges of information and what's going on. Um, other times it's going to be uh, how active you are as a facilitator to make sure that people are paying attention. Yeah. So uh, I've heard concerns from people that do in-person facilitation that they don't know what the other person is doing and they kind of want all cameras on always. Mm. When realistically, you don't need to do that. People have the reason for not coming online or not showing their face. And mm -hmm. you have to respect that for one reason or another. They may be dealing with something at home where they don't want something in the background kind of interfering. Um, they may have something where they're sick and they just don't want to show their face, but whatever the situation is, you kind of have to respect it. Um, but usually the, the, the good measure is like every, for every 15 minutes, you take 10 minutes of like kind of, you take a break of some type Yep. Or you do a check-in with everyone to see what the pulses of everyone like. How's everyone feeling? Mm. Uh, sometimes you can object. You can put that into a mural and have people kind of put emojis down, um, or describe what they're feeling anonymously. Uh, but usually, it's every time for every hour. There's like ten minutes of like, a break. Um, sometimes you at the half-hour point, you can do a quick kind of how's everyone doing. Mm. Um, and if anyone has any problems, you can use the chat that's in the native to say like Zoom or GoToMeeting or WebEx. Mm and have them privately send you something that may be going on in the background. Mm -hmm. So like I have somebody coming over to do some work in the house and I may step away from the computer at the top of the hour. Mm -hmm. Just as a facilitator, you'll be able to see, see and hear all of that. Beautiful. You did um, uh, shout out to your podcast, Remotely Interesting. For everyone listening, definitely get on that. It's the best that's out there at the moment. But you and Sandy did a cool episode a little while ago uh, with some icebreakers as well. So you had a few people jump in and share some of the icebreakers that they use. Do you bring some of those into your sessions 
typically you sort of just like a normal facilitator sense when maybe that's required? We usually teach those as, as part of the, what we do here in the GVDS for me. Um, usually the icebreakers I fall back on, I'm, I'm a creature of habit, like I think most people are. So yeah. I'll put, uh, I'll ask people, you know, I'll have their LinkedIn profile clickable for people when they first come on, if they never met each other to kind of um, check those out. But I'll ask either their favorite food or their favorite uh, like uh, vacation spot, like where are they going after COVID's done? Yeah. Um, and you can use like in mural, you can use their image search and people just drag and drop images, but explain why it's meaningful for them. Um, some of the other things that we did for that remotely interesting episode were really interesting. That's that that was the beauty of it is that yeah. uh, we had a community to tap into that had a lot of perspective on how to get those things uh, to kind of bring something interesting to the table. A lot of it was sketching, yeah. uh, of which I'm really bad at, which is fine. <laughs> anybody else in the call was uh, and um, Andy Davis for one had some really interesting ones that he's used and what's what was really enlightening was that everyone had a different approach and part of it was personality but part of it was applied application through experience mm. and that's why I partnered with Sandy Land too is because she has these kind of I'll, I'll think of tons of ideas but she'll usually be like well why don't we try this this makes sense and she'll kind of narrow it down to something that may, that's practical mm. so when we did the um the icebreaker episode we were like yeah we 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 kind of think we've seen all the best practices and the recommendations well we got to bring people in and give them their give give us their uh kind of go-to ones when they're first starting out and it was interesting to see how that first half was all sketching the second half was more kind of play than it was anything else hmm. no it was a great one that's a good combo um speaking of your best of or your go-to's can you talk to us just a little bit about your go-to tools? I know that you are, um, you're famously a mural guy over Miro. That's still correct. Yeah, and I, I, did, I wrote an article about the differences between the two because yeah. each has advantages and disadvantages. Um, I think it was Miro and Miro, uh, a tale of two whiteboards. Yeah. In, in, in essence, both organizations and companies are working on the things that are kind of, they know are their Achilles heels. Mm -hmm. For Mural, it's their rendering engine. For Miro, it's their community and probably their interface. Mm -hmm. um, we, we surmise that if once Mural had kind of got the rendering engine under control and there was no lag at all, um, that was gonna be a big plus. Mm -hmm. Same with uh, kind of their extensibility. With Miro, it was, they're just starting with their community. They're trying to do a big push for that. Um, and the same with, uh, same with their interface, they're making minor changes, but they're constantly improving on it. Um, the major advantage that either one of them has is that Mural has a bit of, uh, yeah, it's been long established a, a community hold on things. So they, they resonate with how their users kind of use the tool and how it's being implemented. So there's a bit, there's a bit of a favorite with Mural, but yeah, that's, yeah. that's why I've stuck with them. So Mural, still stick with Zoom even with the security concerns. Mm -hmm. um, I've been playing with some odds and ends like blue jeans and other things like that, but the technology works. And yeah. outside of somebody kind of finding a, a passwordless meeting to let us know how much they like Trump or how much they <laughs> like the Democrats, um, I, I haven't run into that myself. So yeah. Yeah. Fair call. Okay. So it's mural. It's still zoom for you communicating offline for some of the groups you encourage probably slack or yeah slack is, is something i fall back on though Basecamp is print with their base camp personal that that came mm -hmm. really close um so and i know a lot of people like notion and i try not to um i try not to be too prescriptive around what tool to use oh, yeah. i give people options in terms of what i think what would work but um, sometimes people come to the table and facilitation and say, you know, we, we're a Microsoft organization and we use Teams and mm -hmm. um, we use WebEx because that's what our enterprise uh, security team has said that we are cleared for mm. what you have to use. Yeah, you just go with it. So staying on that, um, that point actually about what different organizations use. So with Dallas Design Sprints, you're running a lot of virtual sprints. You're working with companies, small to medium businesses. Can you tell us a bit about the work that you're doing there? That's part of the question. And the other part is, you know, for some people who are, who are listening in, they may be in organisations where they're trying to help or they're trying to get buy-in to do this sort of work and it's still in some cases a bit of an uphill battle. So do you have a few 
examples you can talk to about how um, people can influence to for people to do more virtual design sprints. Sure. So most of my most of my work in Dallas Design Sprints deals with consulting, and sometimes it's finding the right person for the job if it's not me. Um, I set up a referral network last year because I had a lot of inquiries that where they, to your point, they weren't quite sure what design sprints were, but they just heard that you can go faster, do design work faster, uh, get things done faster, um, and get everybody on the same page of what what they need to do. Uh, so it was translating what they needed versus who I knew could actually do what they were asking for. Sometimes it was design centric. They just needed somebody to kind of have them go through the motions yeah. or it was, they had um, an engagement where their facilitator fell through and they needed somebody within two or three days that knew FinTech and that was out of Argentina that could basically help them with their situation. Okay. So it was kind of finding those connections for people. And, you know, if, if there was a match in terms of like need versus, uh, uh, what people can do, then that usually worked out pretty well. Um, for the question around uh, telling people that they have to, um, how they would sell virtual sprints to the organization. So I, that, I've been putting a lot of like, so slight deviation. A lot of the things that I get a lot of questions for, I put in the articles because I find that it's better to put that in in the written form than kind of re reiterate in different ways. So there's an article called How to Sell Design Sprints and it's on Medium as well as LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. But essentially that whole deal with, with kind of convincing your organization that virtual sprints or design sprints are the way to go is not to talk about design sprints. It's not about the process. People always go solutions first when it comes to Kind of selling the, the benefits of something and that's not it you have to figure out what problem you're trying to solve for or what the pain is of the person that you're talking to and what they're trying to alleviate mm -hmm. you may not even need a process it may be something out that's completely out of the bounds of uh, you know working on a project or a product what you really want to do is make a human connection figure out what they're all about what's really bothering them and see how you can help them first and foremost and if you feel that the process could work for them, maybe it's a lightning decision jam rather than a full design sprint or a conversation with a couple of other people that are in service design or that are in um, the do professional journey mapping, or maybe even, uh, you know, someone that's in a, in a completely different realm of process that could help based on like jobs to be done. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to understand how, what the, the underlying problem is and the symptoms are and starting there. And don't really try to think that the design sprint uh, widget is going to fix everything. Like yeah. so. That's where people kind of make a mistake. Yeah. I think that's a really good answer. It's just taking a basic design-led approach to even just identifying, you know, where those challenges are instead of just trying to look at this as a solution. What about, what, what, what about when you work with, you know, we have this scenario sometimes where there are people in the organisation that know that this is the right solution for the challenge that they've got, as in this is the right process that's going to solve it. Um, but there are others in the organisation that can't get their head around what this is. So demoing these sorts of things, talking about it, sharing stories, do you come across that quite a bit? Yeah, I've, it depends on who has the resistance. Yeah. So in every organisation, there's going to be someone or some group or someone else that will either seek understanding or um, have, a, have a particular disposition towards a process that they, they like what, what's being done and they see new processes as a, as a way of either, um, you know, making things messy or not necessarily it's going in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. I've learned over time not to, not to convince people otherwise. It's really got to be where they have to either experience it or see it for their own purposes. Mm -hmm. The more convincing I've been trying to do with some people in the past, the more they dig their heels in. You really just have to show that it can be done. And when they don't hear it from you, but they hear it from other people that they either trust or they have a relationship with, or they they have some, um, they take some, they they hold in some sort of regard. That's where the conversation starts to open up a bit. You're not necessarily converting them. They just they want to clarify something that they may have held as a assumption mm. and. They're, they're now, um, because they have new information, they want to go back and re-verify or they want to clarify what they've heard. So that's typically what happens. And you, with, with integrating 
any kind of designs for process in an organization, you have to start super small, go over small things, um, just small uh, different activities that, that come from the designs for process, but you can apply in different things that you do at work, whether it's to do lists or team orientation, mm. and just show how this process works. Then you, you don't have to profess what it is. They just experience it and they go, well, what is this? And then you go, okay, well, let me explain how this kind of works in terms of like an overall thing. Because mm. the more that there's trust built around you, who represents the process, the more they're willing to kind of do a little bit more just to see if they have the same benefits by trying it out. So it's kind of like a touch and go process, but that's usually how it organically works. Yeah, cool. Can we actually talk a bit about the, um, the virtual experience? So global virtual design sprints coming up on the 4th of May is the kickoff. Um, yep. Last time, last one you had around 300 to 350 people, you mentioned before. Can you tell us a bit, give or take, how many, give us a little bit more detail about what to expect or even the evolution of this, where it's come from and more about what we can really, what people can expect this time if they're keen to get involved as well. So the transition from last year, April to November was free to pay. And we had to because, you know, uh, it becomes an expensive habit more so than an actual like platform that I can build anything off of. But it's primarily just to show that it it had uh, had business possibilities. It's something that I could I could I could work off of and sustain myself with. But also to start getting past the notion that I had to do everything for free. So that was a bit of a blocker personally for me. So like I didn't feel comfortable charging for it because I had been used to it. It was presented as being free. And I knew I was going to lose some folks because of it, because they felt the pureness of it was going to go away. But that's fine. Mm -hmm. But what I did learn is that when you do start charging for something, the, the expectations change exponentially. It's mm -hmm. no longer just a, a benefit of the doubt. People are exchanging money for value and implied value. So you have to provide that. And if you don't, you can apologize, but they'll be okay with it, but you have to learn from it. So the, the biggest difference between last November and this one is that we're really taking some of the major uh, feedback to heart, like having challenges that go past the sprint, um, making sure that the training is integrated into the templates, um, not having, having one mode of communication that everyone can kind of function. Uh, being very clear on uh, what the team's role are, how much how much time is being spent on the virtual sprint, what you need to dedicate up front for that, mm -hmm. and um, you know managing expectations around that regard, so that it's not just signing up and you know sitting back like a movie and kind of taking it all in. It's uh, it's really understanding what your role is and the reason why you do the work and what the tangible benefits are afterwards. Mm -hmm. And what sort of commitment is that for individuals? So you mentioned it runs over the month. Are people in their teams working off and on throughout that month? What, are, what does it, how many sprints are they doing on each challenge? Is it up to them? Talk us through an example of what a team might actually do if someone was in it. So in the, for the month, of, so it's three weeks. So it's, the, it's May 4th through the 22nd, but the sprint isn't three, isn't three weeks long. No. It's three individual weeks where people can, can choose their engagement from week to week. Yeah. So the first week may be observation. They may just observe a couple of teams, but not again engaged. Mm -hmm. The second one they decide because of the research background, they're going to do user research for this team and this challenge. Then the third week can be something completely different. They may take it off or they may observe again. But once they're in, they can pick and choose which particular team they want. Mm -hmm. And the team chooses what challenge they adopt. So right now we have about 31 challenges that are up for review by the participants. They put their names next to ones that they're really interested in. Mm -hmm. And based on the number of uh, responses we get, we kind of rank them by order. So we have a top 10 that we kind of lead with that we showcase to participants to adopt as teams. And uh, a couple of weeks before the, the event happens, usually there's a team formed, they know the challenge, we've scheduled the kickoff, they start uh, exploring the space, if they talk about the end in mind, mm. and we, we recommend a course of action for all of them to kind of go down. Um, that's pretty much the structure of it. Mm. So we, it isn't where we're asking people to do three weeks of straight design sprints. It's more, um, we'll assign you to teams based on your preferences, but then your engagement model will be worked out with the team and what makes mm. sense for you and your schedule, because we ask for their availability those weeks. Some mm. people only have like six hours, depending on what their, their situation is. Some have anywhere from 30 plus where they're unemployed, 
they have plenty of time, um, they're furloughed, whatever the situation is. They want to dedicate as much possible, as much time as possible, not necessarily do the challenge, but for the artifacts it produces, mm. things for their portfolio, the, um, <clears throat> the chance to have a greater conversation about their work and how they do their work, uh, which is the point, to kind of elevate the professional, the practitioner to be the best versions of themselves. Mm. The connection part of it is, um, I think, definitely not something that would be underestimated, especially at the moment. Something quite cool that's come from previous ones, I wasn't sure if I read it, was either the second or the third, is, is the talent network. Was that true? That was one of the challenges and it's actually come out that you've created this talent network where people can connect with each other. Did that come out of one of these global sprints? Yeah, so there was a kind of three-way conversation originally with Sabrina Gorich and uh, Jerome Fromau. Mm. Uh, Jerome Fromau is from Talents for You in the Netherlands, and Sabrina Gorich is with Design Sprint Studio out of Stuttgart, Germany. The conversation started with them around how we can use the Design Sprint to find talent, or how we can find uh, find a, uh, for human resource organizations and departments to better uh, match uh, talent with purpose-driven employment, mm. and uh, find a way to have them emulate what they kind of work they do for a charity and have that company kind of observe what happens. So they get an idea of the person's soft skills as well as their applied skills. And then the conversation that happens with the company is that, are they a good cultural fit? Do mm. they seem to make sense for us? Um, that was the original idea. And what uh, Sabrina and Jerome did is they put it through the paces with um, three pilots in October before the, the sprint happened. And they did two talent sprints within the GVDS to further um, the idea of how that would manifest itself and how then and invited some organizations to have a conversation about what they saw what was valuable what wasn't so they're probably further ahead than i am around that concept but yeah that would the talent sprint was their um their idea that they pushed and i think they're going to be doing it again this time around for um potentially the kampala challenge which is for kampala uganda uh there's a group of refugees down there that are uh, working, learning computer programming to basically um, work with businesses on getting that done. Mm. So they wanted to somehow mix the talent sprint with that effort to find nascent talent within, uh, cool. you know, Africa, within Uganda, Africa, to see mm. how that would manifest itself. So pretty ambitious, pretty interesting, but mm. that's the the GVDS is that you have those those manifestations of uh, kind of people that have really interesting ideas and you mix and mix the processes together to see what happens. What are some other examples of that? Because that is a really cool one. I can imagine that this happens every single year where, you know, people come together and they're a team to solve a single challenge at a time and then it, it takes on a life of its own. It becomes something else, whether it's sort of collaborations or connections or people ending up building companies together. Are there any stories of those sorts of connections that have come from GDVS? I think the ideas themselves, since, since we didn't have the, the, the epilogue of the challenges in place after November, there were some three or four teams that still wanted to take what they had done and continue with it, but mm -hmm. it just didn't work. However, there were people that formed relationships, meaningful ones, through their interactions on the team. And they, those uh, resulted in some collaborations on particular like small little ideas. Mm -hmm. I don't have ones at the top of my head, but I'm thinking back on my LinkedIn around all the different things that came up with Natasha Wainwright, Nora Scully. Um, there's something recently with Sandy Lamb and Tom Jepson and Jerome Fromau about you know doing a purpose-driven kind of experimentation with what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So I see it kind of manifesting itself through their, those previous you know, kind of relationships that were formed. Um, so there hasn't been from the challenge side of things. No, there isn't really much to, to look at beyond the, um, the pilot one that turned into, uh, an actual award that was awarded a year later because mm -hmm. IBM it's part of IBM had adopted it in their blockchain technology. And it's a long story, but there was that particular dimension where it was like, wow. So a year, it took a year, but a, a pilot an engagement on the challenge actually, uh, morphed into something meaningful in a different way. Yeah, nice. It feels like this is a moment in time where you could see some some pretty spectacular 
collaborations or challenges. I think the, it feels like the appetite for solving these large social challenges is only growing at the moment and also people's willingness to maybe take more of a global approach to do some of that stuff as well. What do you have some thoughts on what next? Obviously it's been a, a pretty wild ride for you guys in the last few months where, as I said, you kind of predicted that virtual design sprints were the thing back in November and then it's, it's happened and it's here and they're here to stay. What do you think is next? What, what should people be looking at? I mean, I don't mean to be a negative belly, but we're, we're staring in the face of like a global uh, recession. I yeah. mean, and that's a big one. Yeah. Um, the amount of, and just here in the States, the amount of unemployment is just, uh, they're trying to massage it, but it's, it's bad. Yeah. And there's been a real need to by the governments and other people to say, make claims that we're going to open in May and we're going to do this. And the reality is, is that until a scientist actually says it, it doesn't really happen anyway. Yeah. When, when they can start saying they can go out and, and socialize and hug, that'll be makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the people that do in-person facilitation are in a pickle because their bread and butter has always been engaging physically flying out to places and doing workshops. And that was what sustained their business and the service part that I'm in. The services industry is just, it's wiped out for the most part with the exception of like um, essential services mm -hmm. in some places. And for particular disciplines like um, healthcare and other places, they're doing all right because they're still something that matters right now with kind mm -hmm. of getting people masks, getting people medical equipment and all of that. Uh, I think that there is going to be a de-emphasis on process. And this is just me. So this is, take this with a huge grain of salt. In fact, throw a big giant grain of salt, put it on the background, it's just salt. Oh, yeah, we're listening, we're listening. Um, there's going to be a de-emphasis on process. And I think it's going to be more about what, the quick win is then going to be less of a phrase and it's going to be really a manifesto. And you're going to see things that are, uh, quick kind of tests of whether or not something works. And that already is existing in, in online with a lot of different stuff. Sometimes it's, it's, it's really couched in social media with Instagram and with TikTok and things that catch fire, but just because they're, they're trending. Yeah. But I'm talking about with products, like with prototyping mm -hmm. and literally setting up small, short experiments where you learn from your environment, you learn directly from the market. You do, uh, you, you do these things where they're kind of fake, but they uh, elicit some sort of market response mm. that would justify through data and through experiences going in a particular direction because yeah. the market wants that. Some people intuitive that very well, so you don't need this process to make it happen, but mm. if you want to kind of get in the space of um, learning how to do prototyping and learning how to do these small experiments and seeing what seems to work, and learning constantly. This can be done no matter what your discipline, marketing, uh, strategy, sales, design, research, customer support, development, it can be all over the place. The, the, the process just needs to be taught in a way that can be adopted so that like with design sprints and learning it, it can be piecemeal. It doesn't need to be a full on prototyping experience. Mm -hmm. You can really pick and choose your battles. Mm -hmm. But I think that's what's next. And Everyone's still waiting around for voice and it's close, but mm. um, that will definitely impact how people are currently doing design. Um, mm. But in terms of like what's next, something that's, that, that's very akin to Alberto Savoy's prototyping that probably is, is where I put my, my money. Beautiful. And for people who are on the call and are not familiar with that as well, there's, if you just Google Alberto Savoy's prototyping, there's a great talk. I think it's his Stanford one. It's from years and years ago now, but it's still kind of the most succinct way to explain it as a, um, either a precursor or an alternative to going further down the line with prototypes, but it's a great concept. And there's a couple of guys, I think here in Australia that do it as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, again, yeah. you get in that practice, then you understand how much, what the time saver it is, but also, when you hit upon something, yes. then the conversation can start about a design sprint really easy. It's like, okay, now we know there's something there. Let's kind of blow it out and get more people talking about it yeah. and continue to experiment and see what works. Yeah. Super cool. I'm just going to give another shout out to anyone who's on the line and has any questions. Um, you can pop those in. We've got a couple in here, but I'm just going to go with um, 
one more just around who do you think people should be watching in this space? Speaking of people that are, are doing good things, you've mentioned a few there. There's obviously, you've talked about yours and Sandy's podcast. Who else is doing things in the, the virtual sprinting place that we should keep an eye on that's to so learn from? Maybe, maybe not necessarily in my space with people that I'm, uh, that are swimming in my circles that mm. uh, I see kind of making moves that would, that are, moving in the right direction like they're mm. kind of doing the right habits and the right the right uh right things together uh lisa weinsberger is one of them um her last name is w-e-i-n-s she's gonna kill me b-e-r-g-e-r -E -E i think mm. um somebody who has who's very purpose-driven um has an incredible background in terms of just starting up stuff and kind of pushing things forward um that's somebody i'd, I'd look to uh, with Rakesh Kasturi, his last, mm -hmm. I think it's K-A-S-T-U-R-I. Um, he's somebody that's been playing around with the life sprint and we're doing a promotion with him on that. But he's somebody that came into the second GVDS and pretty much rescued of two or three teams because he was very good at taking chaos and making it and normalizing it. Mm -hmm. um, I think he's trying to build a foundation with Matt Stewart and some other folks on his team to provide some, some products that are design sprint-like but uh, he's got the right instincts, I think, in that regard. Mm. Um, there's the usual suspects of people I, I, I work with. I'm really rooting for Ross Chapman at Edge Sprints. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something there with that he does that I, I think is, he's very meaningful. Um, uh, yeah, I'd say that's, a, that's probably oh. the top ones. I mean, I, I already mentioned Jerome and um, some other people, but mm. if, I mean, if I, if I think of, um, other people that are really, really good in the space, not, not necessarily creating content or uh, professing what they know. Andy Davis is a solid. He's in Fort Worth, Texas. He's with a company called Inspiris. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's, he's, I call him the intrepid weather reporter because he has these <laughs> backgrounds on like I do all the time. Um, I wish I had the list when you asked me this question because I know there's somebody in Australia forgetting. No, that's all right. We can um, we'll tag a few people as well in this, so we'll put that in afterwards. Which there's is a awesome. there's um oh god, what is his name? Oh, geez, I see his face. He's uh, look up the company More Space for Light. Oh, um, cool, Dan Levy. There you go. Yeah, good one. Yeah, the old, the smiling yeah. chap because every yeah. Terry. Every <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a very good guy. My kids in the other room destroying things. <laughs> <laughs> that's where we all are now um so we've got a question on here okay so so what was well what's the biggest blow up you've ever had in a sprint what was your your biggest mistake i'm reading that as that we should avoid any real stuff ups that you want to what did you learn thinking that everything's good when it isn't so you may have facilitated and organized something to uh, nth degree it hit all the buttons instinctually and you decide to kind of put your hands off the steering wheel and think that everything's going to work and uh, I, I say that because sometimes with the GBDS you want to help hope that the facilitators with all the training in the world will know which direction to go in if things go in a particular direction with someone being very um, opinionated or mm. wants to go in a certain direction uh, so there's that, um, the kind of assuming that everything's okay. okay. Uh, the other thing that that's a learned experience that can throw people off is like uh, when the unexpected happens. And that, uh, the, the, the example that comes to mind is the physical sprint. And it was something where I knew that I couldn't do it in an organization anymore. And I had to go to like a, a consultant role or, or a provider where someone came in and decided I didn't like anything. They didn't like anything about the design sprint. So they decided to just use everything they learned at IBM and have the rest of the four day session be nothing about writing personas. Like mm -hmm. all we did was write personas the entire time with the 20 or 30 people in the room. And I'm oh like, my God. me and my, me and my friend Adrian were just going, what, <laughs> what? just happened? <laughs> and we were, we, we had to somehow like, like kind of, uh, you know, salvage it for whatever we were doing mm. and said sure we're going to produce these high profile personas that will sit on the wall that no one else will use but that's yeah okay. mm, so God. 
So similar to what we get in normal facilitation, then it sounds like that is the kind of it's got flavors of that. Standard yeah. pits. Yeah, exactly. Good one. Um, this one's probably a slightly more tactical one. Um, how are you dealing with the technical setup of participants? So the onboarding, you mentioned before you like everyone to meet each other, but mm. this is about how you deal with the technical setup of participants. So how are you onboarding them into mural? And I guess on mass, if you've got 350, how does that work? Are you doing little tutorials or so size matters in the sense that if you're dealing with 350 people all at the same time and you're trying to teach them before a session, um, you're going to have to deal with things like breakout rooms. Mm. Um, also, you'll have to use something like Loom Pro or a desktop recorder to um, kind of do what you can to mitigate the questions in advance. So you have that as like kind of like a library, maybe four or five videos on what to do to get Zoom up and running, to test your microphone, to situate yourself in front of lights or the outside. Uh, and uh, when you, you know, what you should have next to you, um, how to use the mirror whiteboard, and chances are there's going to be half of your audience that will never look at those and come in fresh straight from the meeting and just now they're sitting and trying to take it all in. Yeah, you just deal with that when it happens. Mm. Uh, outside of those experiences of large organizations, the kickoff is a perfect time to test out your icebreakers because mm. you want to make that initial engagement. Not everyone reads the brief, gives their opinion on what is there. That's not what it's about. It's okay, let's get to know one another and let's have some fun in this whiteboarding space. And through play, they can understand how to use the tool and they can ask questions and they'll go about their own paces. Like, mm. how do I, um, like, how do I increase my text? Or how I, I instead of, I have a circle uh, digital card, but I want to make it a square. How do I do that? Mm. And if you know the tool very well, you can just say right then and there, all you have to do, and you're sharing your screen is go boop, 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 and that's how you do it. And the time goes pretty fast, but what you're aiming for is not necessarily comprehension, but more confidence and understanding, mm. knowing that if they encounter this during the session, you're going to be the exact same way. You're going to go, oh, just do this, this, and that. Or if you got a question, chat me up and give me about five minutes to get back to you because I'll be in the middle of something. But they'll know that they, that you have their back when they ask you something regarding the technical aspects of things. Yeah. Nice. So set it up early and get them to um, yeah, get in there and experience it. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for spending this evening or this afternoon for our guys here with us, Robert. That was so, so valuable, super cool. So uh, GVDS, Global Virtual Design Sprint, happening on the 4th of May. Still time to sign up. We'll pop some links in there of how people can jump on that and get in touch. And yeah, hopefully you have a few more people from down under joining this time as well. Sure, and, and one thing I always offer is that um, if you have any questions for me after this is done, I mean, be sure to populate whatever thread that you're gonna be putting up on LinkedIn and whatever to make sure that, and I'll, and I'll answer those as they come. Beautiful. But uh, one thing I always recommend people doing is they send me an invite in LinkedIn where I'm pretty active. Just make sure there's a note attached and tell me the context of what you're dealing with or the situation and that 150 character limit as a starter. And uh, we can just have a conversation about what you're dealing with or if any you have any follow-up questions to what we're talking about today. That'd be amazing. Thank you so much, Robert. It's been incredible to talk to you. Um, we really appreciate it. And yeah, we'll look, to, look forward to um, the global session and talk really soon. Definitely will. And remember everybody, wash your hands. <laughs> and be kind to one another. Keep safe. We're all, we're yeah. All exactly. different. Yeah. That's beautiful. All right. Chat soon. Thanks, Robert. Thanks for having me on. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.